Dorks, you must understand that this is all strictly confidential. Yesterday afternoon, our European sections intercepted a German communique sent from Cairo. I've got some information here, but I can't make anything out of it, and maybe you can. Dorkfest development proceeding, acquire headpiece, staff of Ra, Abner Ravenwood, U.S. The listeners have discovered Dorkfest. Now, just what does that mean to you, Dorkfest? Well, Dorkfest is one of the possible resting places of the Lost Podcast. You mean the you mean the actual Lost Podcast? Yes, the actual Lost Podcast. You know, the one we meant to record about Indiana Jones a long time ago and never did. If you believe in that sort of thing. Well, I've clearly come to the right men. You seem to know all about this, Dorkfest. And with that, welcome back, everybody, to another installment of Dorkfest, the podcast. Before we go too much further, let's get to know our uh, visiting professors from Marshall College who've come all this way to talk about our topic today, one of our fondest bedtime stories. First, our foremost authority on the Ark of the Covenant, Professor Binksiana Jordan. Have you got both sides of your medallion there, Professor? I, I do. I, I, I certainly do. Also dropping Binks, I think, for the first time in a little while, not including the prequels podcast, but I, I appreciate that. I was trying to make some puns work, and, uh, you know, they're all a bit of a stretch, but this one came perhaps easiest. <laughs> we also have with us, oh, just back from work abroad studying the Shankara Stones, the man they call Balosh, but we call Josh. I'm sure he understands the true power of the stones now. A British tar is a soaring soul, as free as a mountain bird. His energetic fist should be ready to resist a dictatorial word. <laughs> uh, Josh, I said two lyrics. That's eight lyrics. Can't you count? <laughs> I'm ready, Gabe. I'm fired up for this one. I love it. I love it. I'm here for it. And that was gorgeous. And finally, lest we forget, a man who has made Grail lore his life's work, a Scottish lord with an interest in tapestries, Lord Clarence MacDonald. He just showed up. We didn't have your visit on the books, but we're glad you're here. Well, Gabe, if you're Scottish law, then I'm Mickey Mouse, and I am certainly not a professor of archaeology, nor an expert on the occult, or obtainer of rare antiquities, but I'm just happy to be along for the ride. And uh, yeah, ride it's going to be, perhaps in a minecart or two, and hopefully none of the tracks give way beneath us as we go. Now, you know what cautious guys we are, but we're just going to make this up as we go along while we talk about another beloved franchise of ours, one we haven't touched on too much yet, Indiana Jones, the guy you always knew would come walking back through your door because something made it inevitable. Legend has it that Steven Spielberg and George Lucas were hanging out on the beach between projects when Spielberg professed his desire to direct a James Bond movie. Lucas claimed he had something better, another project, based on the adventure serials of their youth, something he'd written way back in 73, and thusly named his future pop culture icon that he'd envisioned, Indiana Smith. Luckily, Spielberg suggested Jones, and after a brief flirtation with not casting Harrison Ford, Raiders of the Lost Ark debuted in 1981, became the highest grossing movie of that year, and it spawned a film series that would continue through at least four movies over the next three decades, as well as a TV series following a young Indiana Jones that wasn't half bad, though we'll be just focused on the films here today. We're really excited to dork out about what we love about these movies, as well as which parts belong in a museum. But as always, we'd first like to warm up to the proceedings. So let's go to our warm-up question. Uh, because over his long career, you guys, I'm certain, recall, Harrison Ford has been called upon to be a man of action many a time. 
This, of course, necessitates some fast movement on his part, and something we can't help but notice and love dearly is the particular fashion in which Harrison Ford runs. He's, uh, he's not like Tom Cruise at a full-tilt sprint racing the camera, performing death-defying stunts, though he's probably had one or two of those over the years, especially if you count his escapades as a pilot. Harrison Ford runs with his entire body, trying to move as fast as possible in multiple directions at the same time. Maybe it's just for the camera. Maybe it's how he actually moves in real life. Maybe it's Maybelline. But let's hold a quick warm-up summit on the following question, dorks. Considering his whole career, what is the best scene of Harrison Ford running? And Josh, let's start with you. Well, I'm going to start with the franchise that we're here to talk about, Indiana Jones, and I'm going to go with one of the first times we see Harrison Ford running in Raiders of the Lost Ark, and that's when he's running away from the Jovitos. That scene starts brilliantly when Belloc's back is turned for a moment, and Indy just takes a quick glance around and then books it. And he's taken off through the jungle, ducking through the vines, and then he gets out in the open, and then that is where you see Harrison Ford really in his glory. Arms and legs in every direction, um, yelling out to Jock to start the engine, get the plane up right from the start. There's dust flying off his jacket in the, when he gets out in the open and in the sunshine, you can see it. Um, it's just a terrific scene. Um, and when you pose this question, Gabe, it's the first thing I thought of. It's a fantastic answer. Um, and I'm ashamed to say it didn't even cross my mind, but maybe that speaks to just how many of these scenes we had to consider here. <laughs> That's a, an all time classic. And yeah, he's just such a, a physical actor, uh, you know, I mean, he is, um, and yeah, as you say, limbs akimbo he is just sprinting his way out there dan uh what have you got as far as an answer to this query so i my initial thought was exactly where josh went uh and not that was not where i eventually ended up but yeah when you think about harrison ford running you think about some of the main franchises that we focused on the indiana jones the star wars realm and i kind of wanted to veer away from some of our tried and true franchises when trying to answer this question. And I don't have a specific scene in mind, but I'm going to say Harrison Ford as the president of the United States in Air Force One. And I'm thinking specifically when he's got the machine gun and he's underneath, like in the, in the bowels, in the basement of the plane, and he's got the machine gun kind of tight up to his chest and he still has the jacket. He's kind of been roughed up and he really gets the elbow swaying from side to side as he kind of maneuvers through the cracks and crevices of the bowels of the airplane. What I think makes Harrison Ford so wonderful as a character actor, and we're going to talk a lot about it in Indiana Jones, is his relatability. And I find that his action sequences and movements, particularly in that movie, very relatable. He comes across as sort of the everyman president. Um, and Air Force One is, without question, one of my guilty pleasure films. So if I have an opportunity to shoehorn it in here to the Harrison Ford Appreciation Hour, then I'm going to do so. So sorry I don't have a specific scene, but I have like a general visual in mind from Air Force One. I think that's completely fair. Um, and it's interesting you went that direction because I sort of went that direction. Uh, I've always considered Air Force One sort of the unofficial third Jack Ryan movie that Harrison Ford made, um, basically just because that character ends up president 
in the Clancy books that they never really followed all that. But I did go the Clancy route and I picked a specific sequence from uh, Clear and Present Danger. And it's only because I think it, it's a dramatic moment to be certain. Harrison Ford's running. So obviously stuff's going, going down. He is uh, just sort of in his higher up CIA agent. He's sort of a desk jockey these days in this one. And he's going down uh, to, uh, to South America on a, uh, a tour with, I think, a, a congressman. He's got some FBI folk with him. Uh, he's checking out, you know, some, some cartel work, um, you know, what people are doing against them. And their caravan is uh, assaulted. Um, it's a really intense action sequence, actually. It's probably the highlight of that movie. Really effective. But there's a moment when, uh, you know, every car is sort of getting blown up and Ryan's and one other car, uh, Harrison Ford's and one other car, the only ones left, and they have to move between cars. Um, and his buddy gets gunned down in the other car as Harrison Ford is crossing and everything goes slow motion. And it's that same huge, you know, as Josh described, that, that same flailing run, but it's over a distance of about, of about eight feet in slow motion and it's glorious. It's there, it's not, you just get to see every flail and odd limb out and it captures every glorious moment of the Harrison Ford run. And at the very end, it's even, there's a dive because there's an explosion behind him and he has to, you know, he takes even a hit into the, into the dirt and up against the curb. And, and there's exactly what, uh, what Dan's saying, where yeah, Harrison Ford has a great, as a performer, um, is a great naturalistic physical actor in terms of uh, placing the everyman into the scene. Jordan, let's round it out with you. That's uh, it's three big ones you've got to compete with there, but I'm certain you've got some to bring it home. Well, a bit surprisingly, I think I'm the only one that's going to be going the Star Wars route, and I'm pleased because I actually have two to choose from. So I will mention both, and I will mention why I'm going to choose the one over the other. So the first one that came to mind when you posed this question, Gabe, is from A New Hope. It's the scene where Han and Chewie are running. And you've got that scream from Harrison Ford, and then they're approached by the stormtroopers, and it's like, ah! But ultimately, I'm not going with that one because the special edition ruined that scene. Because in the original one, you had only you know a handful of stormtroopers, but enough for Chewie and Han to be afraid of. And then George Lucas, when he decided, oh, I can just copy and paste stormtroopers all over the screen, I'm going to do that. Um, so that ultimately ruined that. But in, in rewatching Return of the Jedi a couple of weeks ago, I was reminded of another great Harrison Ford running scene where he is running away after the shield generators being blown up. And what I love about his running in that scene is that it's not limbs first, it's chest first. He's like, <laughs> he's like pushing his chest all the way out um, to run with that. So, so that's ultimately the scene that I'm gonna go with. Um, again, it's just a full body motion running, uh, something that Harrison Ford is very well known for. Um, and you know, two great instances, two great examples of that happening in Star Wars. What a perfect way to wrap it up because boy, yeah, if you're going to go the Harrison Ford route, that Return of the Jedi answer is absolutely the correct answer. As soon as you nix the Stormtrooper A New Hope answer, I was watching all of our faces here on the chat and everybody knew where you were going. Uh, that was, uh, it's the perfect choice. Um, yeah, brief and to the point and we shall be excellent work, dorks. You've crossed all the T's and dotted that I that starts the word Jehovah in the Latin alphabet, of course. And now that we're all warmed up, since we wouldn't want to pull a muscle dorking out too hard, since as we all know dorks, it's not the years, it's the mileage, it's time to go into the lion's den and do some real digging on the subject. Indiana Jones, of course, represents the whole reason we got into archaeology in the first place. For our one point question, very simply, what makes a good Indiana Jones movie? We've got four of them, we've got a lot of material to draw from. Jordan, we're going to start with you. What makes, what's the best of Indiana Jones? What makes a good indie movie? 
a lot of different directions that I could go for this question. Um, I'm going to ultimately go with the first thing that you see in each of the different films that we're discussing, and that's the opening scene. Um, Raiders of the Lost, Lost Ark perhaps has one of the most iconic, one of the most memorable opening scenes in all of cinema, something that's been reenacted, something that's been satirized through any number of different different television shows, different movie series in its own right. Um, and it also, you know, presents Indiana Jones as the character that we are going to see him throughout the rest of that movie. You know, you see just the silhouette of him throughout the beginning, but then you also see how educated he is, how deliberate he is, how um, studious he is in terms of all the different steps that he's going through. But then to end it off, you, you have the slight miscalculation in terms of the weight, and then that is what sort of then thrusts him into this character that makes it up as he goes or makes it up, makes it up on the fly. Um, so that's, you know, that's a, a fantastic opening scene. Um, with The Last Crusade, you also have this great opening scene of young Indy. And I love this one because it's sort of, you know, presents the ethos of Indiana Jones. It starts to build up his character and we see some of the seminal moments in his life that turned him into the character that we came to love in Raiders of the Lost Ark and will continue to love through The Last Crusade. Um, you also have that great transition as the hat is pushed down on young Indy and then pushed back up in, in, in old Indy or older Indy. Um, so I think these opening scenes have a way of you, you, they do a couple of things. They, you, they, they really grab the audience's attention right off the bat, and it's these seminal moments they remember in the films, but then they also serve this purpose of, you know, setting up the character for what we're going to be seeing throughout the film and throughout the film series. Noting their opening sequences, you're right, that's, that's really important to every movie, whether it's setting up the plot to follow something about the character, but that opening sequence from Raiders we drop the word iconic a lot on this podcast, but boy, if that doesn't also make the list. Um, and it's the start of a movie that's full of efficient storytelling. And that scene itself is just so economical in, in what it tells you about, about the character. Yeah, you're spot on there, Gabe. I mean, you think about that scene start to finish is probably about 12 minutes long from the, I mean, from you see Paramount Pictures Presents to the time that, you know, he's in the plane with Jock and he's spooked out by the snake. It's probably about 12 total minutes, but the amount of information that you learn about Indiana Jones in those 12 minutes with hardly any dialogue, you learn it all from the visual cues, you learn it all from the tremendous acting of Harrison Ford. It's basically in stark contrast to what we talked about in our last podcast. Remember, we were breaking down the Star Wars prequels and it was all this dialogue just clubbing you over the head with information because it's bad writing and it's bad storytelling. This is storytelling done right. You learn so much about Indiana Jones and even just the opening shot of him. You don't even see his face. I, I really enjoyed re-watching it a couple of days ago. The opening shot, they're passing through the jungle and everybody's kind of looking back as if looking back in terror and in fear. What's behind us? What's lurking, you know, in our rear view mirror? And Indy's just, I'm looking straight ahead. The true adventurer, just looking towards, you know, what's next. 
And you're right, Jordy, the, the slight miscalculation really knocks him down a couple of pegs and all of a sudden now makes him this character that becomes endlessly more relatable. Because up until that point, we thought, my God, like this guy, he's thought of everything. He brought this bag of sand to be able to use the weight. He knew this was going to be a thing he needed to do. And then all of a sudden, the hat, yep, I'm good to go. And the bag starts to drop down and we think, uh-oh, okay, time to leap into action here. And then he gets caught and we realize, okay, this is not the infallible character that we thought we had our hands. It just, I mean, I, I know I'm kind of going on about that scene in particular, but I do think what starts to separate good Indiana Jones films from not so good Indiana Jones films is exactly how they start. And Jordy, you mentioned it. It's Raiders and it's Last Crusade and they start with really efficient storytelling. That's a really good turn of phrase game because they don't have to use a ton of dialogue. They don't have to use a ton of action. Yes, there is action. Yes, there is some dialogue, but it's efficient storytelling to give you a lot of information right at the very beginning, but it doesn't overwhelm you. It doesn't club you over the head with, hey, you better remember this, 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 and this, or you're going to be totally lost. Because thankfully, they reinforce a lot of that information as they go along, but it starts with those iconic opening moments. And uh, that moment, too, when right before you know, we have the, the grab of the hat and, all right, cool, we're good to go, that is... I think key to part of the reason why, just to expand on that opening scene's brilliance a little longer, um, part of the reason why we love Indiana Jones so much is what that shows too, is not only is he smart and capable of getting to a certain point, he can get himself out of a jam. He is instantly established as somebody who can think on his feet, move a little bit, and is quick in the moment. And that is, yeah, what absolutely sets up the stakes for a relentlessly entertaining hijinks. We mentioned the action sequences, and I think that's we talk about Harrison Ford as a physical actor and in terms of efficient storytelling, um, the action in Raiders especially is so tight. Uh, it's, it's perfect. I, I want to highlight first because I know I have an opinion on this that's going to get challenged. Um, I've always loved that airstrip fight when they escape the Well of the Souls, Indy and Marion, and they get out of there and they think, okay, uh, cool, they're going to fly the Ark out of there. So Indy goes to hijack the plane. And every single thing that happens at, at near regular organic beats throughout that sequence builds and builds and builds the tension. You've got Indy going to fight the guy. He's trying not to get seen. Oh, now he's got to fist fight this guy. Oh, now this other Nazi has seen, and now he wants a piece of the action. Oh, now the pilot has seen, and he's got a gun. So now we have to maneuver around the plane, which is moving because Marion took out the restraints on the wheels, and now she's going to try and get the pilot, and now the pilot's shooting at Indy, and the big guy's beating the snot out of him, and, and it just keeps building. Then Indy, then um, Marion's trapped in the cockpit. And, and then the uh, tanker gets punctured, so oil is spilling out everywhere. And then a fire is caused when Marion uses the guns to take out the truck of Nazis that's coming to get them because of all this stuff in the first place. And not only that, not only after this perfect action sequence builds and they're able to you know, get away in that great wide shot of Indy and Marion hand in hand sprinting across that airstrip, then you have that perfect truck sequence. I mean... Even in Spielberg's career, it's hard to think of a more perfect action sequence in terms of how it escalates the threat and just keeps it entertaining and stressful and then lets you breathe just long enough to plunge you into something equally awesome. Okay, so Gabe did include in our show notes something about that he thought that this escape from the airstrip scene was one of the best action sequences ever and i included a little note that i don't know if it's even the best one from this movie and that was because i was separating the fight by the airplane 
and on top of the airplane with the truck chase. The truck chase was is the highlight of that for me. Indy on the horse, which is Harrison Ford running is tremendous. Harrison Ford riding a horse at full gallop also just looks amazing. Another um, part of the Indy franchise. Yeah. So it, the truck chase sequence is the highlight of that for me. He he jumps from the horse onto the truck, which uh, George Lucas has said that that image he lift he remembered from an old like graphic novel or one of these serials um, that 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 inspired him and this one picture basically inspired all of indiana jones that it was like a, a guy on a horse chasing after a truck and jumping onto the truck so the, the inspiration part i think is cool but then indy has to fight the driver and then he takes control of the truck and then the nazis are coming from either side and he fights them off and then they have a guy coming from over top who ends up knocking him out and then indy has this great stunt where he has to go underneath the truck and then he's coming back over top regaining control uh, all the while like speeding up and slowing down the truck to take out the cars the rest of the cars in this caravan and then ending as they pull into Cairo and then a canopy comes up and a crowd surrounds the truck to hide it and it's a big triumphant ending that's my favorite action sequence from from Raiders Gabe and yeah, no, it, totally fair to split the two. And I think they are, I mean, they are separate things. One leads pretty directly into the other, but they're completely separate set pieces. And yeah, no, I mean, that, that truck thing, the stunt under the, um, under the truck with the whip is just awesome every time. I mean, that's, it, that's another thing that really sets Indy apart. He's the guy, because the, the Nazi he's fighting tries that toward the end of that sequence. Indy, you know, is able to pull this, you know, he pulls something out of his butt like he always does and is somehow able to crawl under the truck and hang on. And it's, it, it's phenomenal. It's indie, it's impossible, and it's fun. Well, and, and that payoff is so phenomenal with the guy that tries to duplicate his move under the truck because that's the same Nazi that shot him in the arm, remember, and then gets inside the cab of the truck and, and it starts wailing right on the, on the punctured spot. I mean, he, he gets in three, four jabs right on the arm of Indy that's been, you know, shot. So this guy's a real piece of work. So it's great to see him, you know, go through the front of the vehicle and, and have him be toast. The action sequences are so great. I, one of the things that to me makes Indiana Jones movies so much fun and so enjoyable is the juxtaposition though, between Indiana Jones, the adventurer and Indiana Jones, the academic. And it's such a wonderful transition in Raiders of the Lost Ark because remember, all that we've seen of this guy is capturing this idol, thinking he's sniffed out all the booby traps. Then when they get triggered, he's somehow able to elude those. Then we realize he's tete-a-tete with this other, you know, adventure archaeologist guy who somehow one-upped him. But Indy finds his way to escape from that. So at that point, you know, he clearly you know, has the knowledge to be able to track down where these items are, but he's an adventurer. You know, he's kind of a superhero type. And then the next time we see him, he's dressed up in a suit in a classroom, and he's a professor. And all of a sudden, he's going to, you know, a meeting to discuss, you know, where the Lost Ark of the Covenant might be. But that that transition there is like, well, wait a minute. Oh, so this guy actually is is smart. And that, to me, the overarching theme to me that will continue to pop up throughout this discussion is 
the relatability of the character of Indiana Jones. The fact that he is not a superhero with some powers that none of us could ever possibly have, nor is he James Bond, who seemingly gets out of all these jams, but never seems to have much humanity or doesn't reveal any foibles or any uh, weaknesses on his part. Indiana Jones has weaknesses out the yin yang. We've already, you know, pinpointed a few of them about how he, you know, thought he figured out all the traps. Oh, no, that wasn't the case. Like, this is a guy, his fighting style is very haphazard. I mean, he's clearly not, you know, trained in massive combat. He just sort of gets through with whatever's going to help get him through. And I think that makes him endlessly relatable. And then the fact that you think about it, it's, he's an archaeology professor who, like, on the side is this, you know, adventurer and, and you know, obtainer of rare antiquities. I, I just think it's, it's such a, a great dichotomy. And at least in a couple of movies, they play it off exceedingly well, giving us insights into both of those worlds. Yeah, Dan, I think you're so right, you know, to take it back just for one last quick second back to the opening scene of Raiders, you know, I think what you're talking about, Dan, what I think that scene does so well is that it very intelligently introduces uh, Harrison Ford or introduces Indiana Jones as seeming infallible, and then all of a sudden he is very fallible. And I think that you're right that he's a more fallible character than infallible, and it's this, I, I almost imagine that it's this, like, you know, winking moment by Steven Spielberg that he's presenting him as like, oh, look, you know, here's this infallible character. Oh, wait, no, he's not like that at all. And you're going to see that throughout the rest of these films. And and two, you know, it makes me think of a scene just a little bit later on from that, a scene that Gabe and Josh so expertly um, improvised uh, to begin our podcast, where um, they're meeting with the gentleman from the intelligence department. And, and Indiana Jones, he seems legitimately worried. He's like, what, did I do something wrong? But I think, you know, along with that same idea of him being both an adventurer and an, archaeolog and, and an archaeologist, I think that that makes me think of something else that I love about these movies, which is the idea of the chase. There's always something that Indiana Jones is chasing. You obviously have the Ark of the Covenant in, in Raiders of the Lost Ark. You obviously have the Holy Grail in Last Crusade. But then as I was rewatching these films, I also got the sense that there's these sort of like macro and micro chases that he's going through, both in the sense that like there are smaller literal chases and smaller literal, literal obstacles that Indiana Jones has to get through in order to get to that end payoff. But then you also have different things and oftentimes people and relationships that he's chasing as well. I think you have a great, really engaging relationship shown in Raiders of the Lost Ark between Indiana Jones and Marion. A lot of complicated areas of that relationship. And he's sort of chasing after what that once was. And then they, you know, you could never do any better than you did with the relationship of sort of mending the relationship with his father. Um, as they did in Last Crusade. So I think the idea of the chase, this idea that Indiana Jones is chasing this great, oftentimes, you know, very, very well-known object, but that's not even the real thing. Like, that's not the thing, ultimately, that he finds. As, as uh, Sean Connery says at the end of Last Crusade, when, what they find is illumination. They don't find the thing, they find something within them. And the chase after those relationships is made so much better by the great supporting cast that these movies often have. Um, I'm thinking specifically about 
Karen Allen in Raiders of the Lost Ark is so dynamic. She's such a such a firebrand. So 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 like plucky and and, and a and a you know a, a smart ass and really confident, but also extremely capable. Karen Allen as Marion Ravenwood is 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 a terrific actress, portraying a terrific character. Uh, but Denim Elliott. Uh, is is delightful in Raiders and Last Crusade in two pretty opposing roles. The way he's able to change that up is really nice. John Rice Davies, um, obviously, uh, given my introduction, I have an enormous soft spot for John Rice Davies. Uh, interestingly, during uh, this quarantine period, you can find some pretty humorous John Rice Davies YouTube videos if you're looking for something to do. Um, it, we haven't talked about Temple of Doom yet, but Kihui Kwan is short round. I absolutely adore that character, and that little kid does a tremendous job and really goes toe-to-toe with Harrison Ford, which is an enormous task. Really good job by Kihui, Kihui Kwan and, I mean, Sean Connery. How can you do any better than Sean Connery as Dr. Henry Jones? Talk about being the equal and the better, the more the superior Jones throughout much of that movie. Sean Connery is an absolute joy, and we, we continue to be, or I at least, continue to be awestruck by him. And, and this is perhaps my favorite Sean Connery performance, bar none. He is incredible in, in Last Crusade. Oh, and I also forgot Ronald Lacey in Raiders of the Lost Ark as Tote is tremendous. The The little gag he has with the coat hanger is so cool where he lets it, stretches it out like he's producing this instrument of torture and there's a gasp from Belloc and Marion and then he folds it up into this coat hanger and hands it to his little lackey. He delivers that brilliantly. Um, him as a supporting uh character in Raiders is terrific also. He is, thank you for finally um, not just naming that actor, but pronouncing the character's name because I've always seen it in print and I don't know if I've ever known how to say that character's name. Um, and that, yeah, it's that, a guess. It's a guess by me too, Gabe. It's, you know what? I'm going to accept it. That sounds, uh, that sounded a-okay by me. Um, and yeah, that gag with the, um, the coat hanger is always, uh, is tremendous. He's just such a sniveling little evil little Nazi, even amongst evil little Nazis from the get-go. It's, yeah, he's, he's fantastic. And um, really gets his due with the, uh, with the face melt at the end. Like, he, he's got that coming. He definitely does. So he, he earned every bit of melted wax on, on that one there. Um, and it occurs to me, too, that they, there's, a, there's still some smart storytelling going on there because, of course, the first thing that happens to him is that he touches the medallion that's really, really hot. So you have this He's, he, I guess he's just been on, he's slowly being engulfed in flames throughout the film. There it is. And I want to say too, uh, Josh, before I second uh, and third and fourth and fifth year, your extolling of Sean Connery in Last Crusade, I agree with you completely on, um, on Mr. Kwan in as Short Round as well. He is just such a perfect kid sidekick and he is a bundle of energy and joy and he is happy to be there for Indy and it's horrifying to watch a kid go through all that stuff in Temple of Doom, frankly, but he's just, he's there for it. And he's, you used the word plucky earlier. I think maybe Indy always needs a plucky sidekick. Um, and yeah, it's just, their, their bond is great. The, the scene when they play cards at the, at the campsite before they reach the, uh, the temple is a great little bit. And, and apparently that was uh, an improvised scene between 
those two actors. Uh, it might have even been from the audition, but I think that's what um, uh, it was. Those two guys that sort of worked it out, and it's yeah, it, it's the chemistry is fantastic, and it it does provide some lightness in the in what should be that that adventure movie. Yeah, Gabe, but, that's that's the best part of Temple of Doom is, is okay. the card game. Yeah, but also, uh, boy. Sean Connery in Last Crusade. I just want, I'll keep this short and I'll say, I agree with you. I think this is Sean Connery's best work um, in his career. He gets to do everything like across the, he gets a, a full range really of, of human stuff to do. You know, he thinks he loses a son. He tries to redeem himself. He, he grows as a person, you know, he's facing danger for the first time. It's a new experience for me. Happens to Indy all the time, but you know, it's uh, yeah, he, he gets so much fun stuff to do in, in Last Crusade, and Sean Connery nails it every time. And he even gets to quote his Charlemagne. The quest for the grail is not archaeology. It's a race against evil. Fantastic. Okay, you, you guys all done doing your Sean Connery impressions? Probably not, but for okay. Now. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, I would say definitely not. I, I don't think this is at all a hot take, because I don't know that anyone here will argue against it, but I would propose that the casting of Sean Connery as Henry Jones is the single greatest casting decision in the history of film. When you think about the, yeah, yeah I, I see Gabe, Gabe on the chat is like, huh, what? This is completely, complete insanity. I mean, you can't be serious. Name a better one. Go. Ian McKellen as Gandalf. I oh, mean, yeah, that's like, pretty good. Of course he goes that's Lord pretty... of the Rings. Of course I'm going Lord of the Rings. Um, okay, I... Robert Downey Jr. is Tony Stark. I knew you were going to yeah. say Yeah, and then he Robert goes Marvel. He just goes right back to okay. the all safe right. wells. Okay, Marlon Brando in The Godfather. Okay, all right, fine. All right, so I should, re- Shaw I should... And Jaws. I'm sure if we go back, I bet you, you said something almost similar about Robert Shaw's. Robert Shaw's in <laughs> No, because I that wasn't even my favorite character. I picked Brody. So no, thank, thanks for paying attention. What about your favorite captain, Patrick Stewart, as Jean-Luc Picard? All right, so oh, maybe, Professor X. All right, maybe, maybe, no, that's I mean that's that's good casting. That's not great casting. Okay, so maybe that's maybe that's a little out of the scope of reality, but, but that was point. Yeah, but that was a brilliant casting decision. And to Gabe's point, Sean really does get to do a little bit of everything. I mean, a lot of the Sean Connery that we've talked about is. James Bond, Sean Connery, or Untouchable Sean Connery, where it's kind of, I mean, yes, James Bond has some humor, but it's its sort of like skeevy 1960s machismo humor. Henry Jones is a genuinely funny and heartwarming character. Like, he gets this broad spectrum of things to do. And yeah, I mean, you guys said if, if Indy needs a, a plucky sidekick, if that's Marion and Raiders and it's short round in Temple, then it's Henry Jones, his own dad. I mean, who, who knows how to push your buttons better than the guy that installed them? And that's Henry Jones to Indiana Jones. And their interplay is just, it's sensational. I mean, the movie is tremendous up until they get to the castle and he rescues Henry, and then it just takes off and goes into another stratosphere. I will just piggyback off of what you guys touched on as it relates to Short Round. Um, I I despise this movie. I I think Temple of Doom is just a grotesque, wasted opportunity of a tremendous actor in his heyday 
with an iconic character, and I think they just drop the ball immensely. That said, that card game scene is the best scene of the movie, and as sidekicks go, particularly child actor sidekicks, Short Round does a nice job. And I do think they needed a child character tag along for that story to really resonate with the abducted children. I think Indy needed to have not necessarily a child of his own, but at least a child that he cared about to kind of push him, you know, to want to free the children. I mean, not like the guy's some kind of scumbag who's not going to, you know, free children, but I think it, it helps hammer it home a little bit better. But that's the only remotely, mildly good thing I will say about that movie because I, I absolutely hate that film. Okie dokie, Dr. Jones. Hold on to your potatoes. Temple of Doom is not good, but there's more than just one good thing about it. Several of the exterior shots, when they're trekking across India, they're actually in, in Sri Lanka, but it's supposed to be India, is some really beautiful work by Spielberg. You have Harrison Ford riding an elephant. This is pretty cool stuff to look at. The bridge scene at the end, it, with another great short round line, when Kate Capshaw says, "Is he? Uh, is, he's nuts," and short round says, "No, he's not nuts. He's crazy." It's a cute little delightful line, um, and and the execution of that stunt, they had to build that bridge, and they had one shot to get that one opportunity to get that shot correct, and they were able. And they were able to do it with all, you know, like 12 cameras trained on this one bridge when they, when they blew it up. Because once they blew it up, they couldn't, build it, they couldn't build it again. Once you get into the Maharaja's Palace and then subsequently into the temple, that is the meat of the movie. That needs to be the best part. And unfortunately, it's the worst part. But th th there's more to like about Temple of Doom than just Short Round. I'll agree with you, uh, Josh, in that. I mean, I think it's as we were talking about efficient or economical storytelling earlier. And I think this movie is probably as much, it's not as iconic as Raiders because it's just not as plainly as good. But I think the craft going into it is about as tight and, and well handled. I think the movie's about the same length as Raiders. Um, and I think it's trying to do a couple of different things at the same time. And all the crafts work on display. I mean, the minecart chase the the huge amount of work that goes into the opening set piece, uh, ridiculous as it is, through to the the jump and using a raft as a parachute, um, which I agree. You know, I'm all, I'm even you know with nuking the fridge later in Crystal Skull, I'm kind of okay with all this stuff. We're in a heightened world. Like Indy survives, you know, by the skin of his teeth. These are things I can accept. Yeah, going later on into the movie when it just kind of gets plain mean, and when I start thinking of the movie as the Temple of Gloom, it's just a lot harder to watch. On, on various levels, but I mean the crap. And as, as Dan pointed out, yeah, it's it's peak Harrison Ford. We uh, we have the actor at the at the height of his powers, basically for everything he can bring to the character. And in service to a story like this, word has it that uh, in the development of this, you've got both Spielberg and Lucas going through divorces, and I think some of that meanness just infuses its way into into the the bones of the movie. I think no matter how much great trickery you can pull off, and and a great action sequence and, and the absolute true, yeah, feel goodness of when the kids are finally liberated and they get out to their families and yeah, the excellent bridge sequence. That's absolutely true, Josh. That's up there with some of Indy's best work, but yeah, it's, it's sandwich sandwich between that is, it's just a slog. And you know, Gabe, when you, 
jokingly, but not so jokingly called it Temple of Gloom, it made me think too that, you know, so much of what Temple of Doom gets wrong is that it just, it goes too far um, in so many different instances. And it goes so, it goes too far, you know, in one specific area where I think other Indiana Jones movies go just far enough. And with that, I think it's the sort of like scary, creepy, grotesque horror factor of the Indiana Jones films. You know, in terms of Temple of Doom, since I was just talking about it, you have the you have the heart sacrifice scene, which is just bizarre and gross. Um, but then before that, what I'm offended by more on multiple levels is the dinner scene. For a litany of reasons, I'm I'm offended by that. Not only in terms of the the visual aspect of it, but also it, it feels insensitive in in several regards. But you know, in terms of this like sort of grotesque, like we're going to gross you out factor, this was something that was done well in the other films. If you think about Raiders of the Lost Ark, you have the spiders on Indy's back at the beginning. You have the the reveal of Forrestal's in like impaled in the first trap that like just like pops out and you see it. Um, Marion being surrounded by the skeletons and then the snake comes out of the mouth at the end. I mean, that one is that that scene that scene could belong in Temple of Doom, considering how far Temple of Doom takes it. But because that's really the only one that I can think of in Raiders of Lost Ark, I think that's a good example of what it's doing well. Um, and then you have Donovan's quickly aging and decaying face in Last Crusade. So you have these like moments in these films where we're going to show you something that's going to creep you out and gross you out. Um, and we're going to take it just far enough before we back off a little bit. Unless we're watching the Temple of Doom, in which case we're going to take it just far enough and then we're going to take it about 300 yards past that. Um, and one last thing that I just wanted to talk about before we move away from the characters, I uh, did just want to give a quick shout out to Kate Planchett in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. It's a movie that we haven't really talked about at all yet. And I think that there are good reasons for it. Although I think that many of the dorks would agree with me that it's not the worst Indiana Jones film. Um, but I think she does a great job in terms of her portrayal as well. I'll go ahead and disagree. I think that Crystal Skull is easily the worst uh, Indiana Jones film. Um, and I, I, I even, like, Kate Blanchett is a tremendous actress. Uh, th that Russian accent is is really thick. Like, she really goes for it. And it's, uh, it, it's a bit much for me. But, you know, I, I, but Jordan posed the question, what do you got? I have a feeling that Dan will, will echo Jordan's sentiments about Temple being the worst. Yeah, I, I absolutely will. And I'll boil it down simply to this. Gabe started this one-point question, what makes Indiana Jones movies enjoyable or what makes Indiana Jones movies good and so successful? And to me, the answer is because they're fun. They're fun adventure tales. I laugh. There's action. There's great sonic moments. They're just fun. You guys, Josh, you said it. Harrison Ford on horseback. That's what I want. So to me, when you can make this fun, great movie in Raiders of the Lost Ark, and then clearly are able to make it again with Last Crusade, and admittedly, those movies are exceedingly similar, and I understand they wanted to get away from Nazis, I understand there was stuff going on in Spielberg and Lucas's personal lives, but as I said before, Temple of Doom was just a flat-out missed opportunity. It's like, you know, uh, a favorite baseball player of ours, like Mike Trout plays for a full year with his head up his keister. 
in the prime of his career when he's 28 years old. And it's like, boy, you look back and think, ooh, that was a missed opportunity there. He could have had one hell of a year and just botched it. Whereas Crystal Skull is not fun in the way that Last Crusade and Raiders is. Those movies are fun. It's fun in the sort of like, ha ha, I can't believe we really are watching Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones again. And I can't believe that Kate Blanchett, as accomplished as she is, getting any and all offers that she possibly could get, decided, yeah, sure, what in the hell, I'll do that one. And I'm going to play it up big time. Whereas Doom is just, it's no fun. Like, where was, where's the fun and the love and the joy of Indiana Jones in that movie? It's just nowhere to be found. And so to me, that's why it is the worst. And it's the worst for me because it's the most disappointing. I do want to uh, touch on one other positive aspect of Temple of Doom and, and Indiana Jones as a, as a whole that we haven't quite uh, glommed onto yet because we've been very restrained this time, but now I think we can let loose. We've been good. John Williams continues to turn in career-defining work. I mean, on pretty much every outing, let's be real, but his Indiana Jones stuff is something special. And Short Round's theme in Temple is tremendous. Yeah, no, and John Williams especially, he's putting in really hard work in Temple from, you know, do it from scoring, you know, anything goes up at the front there. I mean, or, you know, handling that one, which obviously we should have seen that coming. Spielberg's telling us from the very beginning in, in Temple of Doom, anything goes and uh, we just didn't listen but through to that to yeah just all the kinds of dynamic and at times even un-John Williamsian work that he, he he's working as hard on that movie as he is on the prequels with I think lesser results but still pretty darn good results to say nothing of yeah the instant revelation that is um, as Josh pointed out in a previous podcast the combined revelation of his two proposed indie themes into one instantly iconic piece of music thanks to a Spielberg suggestion and then I think the maybe career best work I probably said this about something else but I'm going to say it again here uh, that he does on Last Crusade um, the number of themes and I'm, I'm always thinking particularly of an alternate theme for that movie is kind of his grail theme it's kind of this lone almost um, a Gregorian chorus kind of a sound and progression to to this really ancient and medieval foot, but powerful sounding theme. It's really cool work. And, and even, you know, sort of the, the bad guys, the Nazis get a bit of their own theme and even sort of that Nazi Lieutenant who is just a terrific bastard gets his own sort of mini theme uh, during the ticket scene. Um, and then there's that adventure theme, that sort of really light playful thing that really only takes over when Indian is, uh, when Indian and Henry start, working together about halfway through the, the movie. You can hear it behind them when it's a, what about the boat? We're not going on the boat? Um, and he goes for the the uh, the motorcycle instead. And that sort of forms another, and that winds in and out of the Indiana Jones theme very nicely. But yeah, John Williams, I'll end it here, putting in work on Indiana Jones as much as anywhere else. Yeah, every little chase has its own theme. The motorcycle chase is different than Indy versus the tank later, yeah. which I wanted to bring up in the action sequences because that's my favorite action sequence in all of the movies is Indy versus the tank. But that's got its own theme too. And that's a phenomenal theme. I'm, I'm hearing it in my head right now, that especially that one crescendo of the brass as that same Nazi guy is yelling for Indiana Jones. It's like right before he puts the... Uh, the rock in the in the turret, I think. Yeah, yeah, boy, such a great sequence. And you have Marion's theme in yeah. uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, which I think you know I, I, that could be one of my favorite 
across all of these. And I mean, there are just so many excellent themes that you could that you could choose from. And and I thought of that one too. Also, when Gabe, you mentioned earlier in the intro about Spielberg wanting to produce or direct a James Bond film. Um, and I always think that's interesting because whenever I hear Marion's theme, I hear a little bit of, interestingly, I hear a little bit of Han Solo and I hear a little bit of James Bond in that theme. Um, just again, really, really great work. And, and I'm, and I'm thinking, I'm going to be the first to propose this. I think that we might need to change the name of this podcast to just John Williams is great. Just, just that. Or just like John Williams Appreciation Podcast. Dan, could you possibly have anything to say about John Williams? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do. Obviously, I've, I've been sitting over here trying to be patient uh, throughout the entirety of the pod. I mean, what, what can I say that you guys have not already said? The, the man is a genius. And if you don't currently own the soundtracks to Raiders of the Lost Ark, and to Gabe's point, you also need to get Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. These are two must-own soundtracks they're as good as movie soundtracks as you're going to find right up there for me in terms of listenability uh, just year after year after year to the empire strikes back which is probably my my after the jaws soundtrack probably my my next favorite movie soundtrack but i mean to your guys point just one memorable theme after another and just the ability to find the right tone for each and every moment in the movie, no matter how varied those moments are, the man is, is just quite simply a genius. And, and the only other point I want to bring up about what makes Indiana Jones movies great, and it falls kind of in line with the sonic element, is the dialogue in Indiana Jones. And what I enjoy about the writing that's done for these movies is not all the good lines are left for the main character. Yes, Indiana Jones gets a ton of great lines. It's not the years, honey, it's the mileage. I mean, you know, iconic lines from Indy to be sure, but you think about Sala, he gets a ton of great lines in both Raiders and in Last Crusade. Asps, I mean, <laughs> very dangerous. You go first. I mean, right. Just funny, but great delivery. Uh, Josh, you already mentioned he's not nuts. He's crazy from short round. Who can ever forget the night at the end of uh, at the end of Last Crusade? You know, he chose poorly. Uh, and, and then obviously, you know, Henry Jones gets a ton of great lines as well. Uh, so do, do, you know, Marcus Brody. Does anyone here speak English or, or even ancient Greek? I mean, like just one great line after another and delivered by a whole host of characters across these movies. A line from that same spot that I had never heard until this past rewatch, maybe because I wasn't listening closely, I might not have just been able to discern it. Do you guys know what he says next after somebody somebody tries to offer him, they're, they're, they're waving a chicken in his face and, and he's got a feather on his face and it's great. And then somebody tries to offer him water. You guys, did you guys ever hear what he says? No, thank you. Fish make love in it. Yeah, I thought that was great. I had never, ever caught that before. I died. Mar Marcus Brody is... A true treasure. <laughs> I mean, what a guy. Lost in his own museum, indeed. He knows a dozen languages. He'll blend in, disappear. You'll never see him again. With any luck, he's got the grail already. <laughs> Smash cut to Dental Melanie just being, again, as stated, delightful. Great work from all you guys, dorks. Um, the museum will buy your pieces, same as ever. Uh, but I want to give the first point uh, to round this out now. We've, we've covered a lot of ground 
and you've never you're never making it easy on me, but this time it's going to go to Josh. Um, there's two things in particular that he gets the point for. He gets it for the notion of Harrison Ford on horseback, which is if I didn't have a half dozen strips of film run through my head right of exactly that moment from these movies, boy, you summed it up. But also he gets the point for Ronald Lacey as tote. And I'm going to remember that forever now. Thank you, Josh. I will no longer feel so bereft of wisdom, thanks to what you have passed along to us. Uh, the treasure, of course, was knowledge. In this sort of race, there's no silver medal for finishing second. We're going to continue on with our two-point question, um, and something we've dipped our toes into a little bit here, but we're going to um, try and get a full cup worth of holy water to test out this grail and talk about why do we love Indiana Jones as a character? Or what do we love about Indiana Jones as a character? What is it about him? You know, we've touched on the dialogue. We've touched on some of Harrison Ford's innate abilities, you know, that he brings as an actor to the role. We've talked about some of the, you know, characters he rolls with within his world. But let's dive a little deeper. What do we love about Indiana Jones as a character? And we're going to go to the expert himself. Uh, Josh, why don't you start us off here? I'm going to start with the first thing that you see of Indiana Jones on screen, and it's the costume. Um, it was complete in George Lucas's imagination before anybody was cast, before anybody was hired. The fedora, the leather jacket, the bullwhip. It's these three essentials that Indiana Jones has, which creates in silhouette an iconic image. And that as a jumping off point really grabs the audience right away there's a lot of fun things they do with that hat image in silhouette it's a tried and true halloween costume it's you know an outfit that we all you know would love to have for ourselves and think we would all look great in and harrison ford is of course the, the epitome of it but it's that costume that i think is the the start of what we love about indiana jones and uh oft mimicked in uh, movies down the years, those, um, you know, whether it be the hat or the, the jacket or some combination of all that, you know, sort of the ready belt around the waist with various things on it as they need. Yeah, no, that, it became an adventure um, archetype, really, instantly. Josh, you mentioned Halloween costume uh, one year. I did, in fact, go as Indiana Jones for Halloween, to your point, oh, exactly. Too. Yeah, yeah, because the, because the look is so iconic and so cool, you you want to be that cool yourself. I remember I had my mom help me dust up the undershirt so it looked, you know, like a little dirty, like it had, it had been in the desert for a while. Well, yeah, and that I mean, speaks, too, to something that Dan talked about earlier with the relatability of Indiana Jones, the fact that we feel as if we could actually dress up as him. And, you know, and, and, and we talked about it earlier, but just to bring up another couple of examples of it, we talked about the, the fallible nature of Indiana Jones and how that's something that the, the audience can relate to and they can feel like he feels more believable because of that, especially considering how intelligent he is and how calculated he can be. Uh, but you have, you know, the fact that there's this somewhat unrealistic, but explained in Last Crusade, fear of snakes, that he's he's just petrified of them in the same way that his father is terrified of rats. Um, and you also have the fact that he can fly, but he can't land. Um, and the feud with his father, right? 
had something that's you know the 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 relationship and the the tumultuous relationship that he has with his father and especially the way that's played between Harrison Ford and Sean Connery these are all very relatable aspects of the character um and certainly has to be among the conversation of things that we love about Dan talked about earlier um that notion of the the last thing you learn about Indiana Jones is him as an academic his is a him as a professor and as you're talking about this Jordan I think that's uh this is, I think, the, the quicksilver in the mix. I think this is the thing that seals everything else in. Everything else is sort of made believable because he has this background as not just an everyday Joe, but like, you know, he's kind of a specialized everyman. You know, he's got, obviously, you know, his knowledge is going to help in his, in his side hustle of <laughs> recovering antiquities. But I think, yeah, I think without that, it's just another, that's what makes it uh, something Spielberg said that appealed to uh, him about Indiana Jones as opposed to James Bond was that Indy was Bond without the hardware, no gadgetry, no sort of support system. He's just out there. He's got maybe contacts and in, in cities, he's got a past, you know, he, he knows some folks, but otherwise it's just him and his wits out there. And, you know, speaking to the, the foul building, we were talking about the dialogue um, before this. Um, I mean, that's, that's an early, that's at the very end, right? Of that, of this opening sequence we're talking about. That's the, the last thing we learn about him there. I hate all this stuff. Hey, show a little backbone, will you? It's great. You know, even he goes through all that, uh, still can't catch a break. He's a great dramatic character. I mean, just as far as storytelling goes, especially modern blockbuster action storytelling, he's the perfect vehicle for that kind of stuff. Although, yeah, with the caveat of applied to the right material also. We can put Indy through a bunch of temples, but they might not all be fun. Might be a little doom-filled. So, yeah, I mean, I, I spoke to the relatability earlier, and I think one of those aspects that really plays well for him is the idea that, and he even admits it at one point, I'm making this up as I go along. And isn't that kind of what most of us are doing in our day-to-day -day lives? You set out with a plan, you encounter some turbulence, and at that point, you're basically making it up as you go. You're relying on your knowledge and you're relying on your support system. But outside of that, like once the plan goes awry, you're kind of just going with the flow. And that's what Indiana Jones does throughout almost the entirety of his ventures. You know, nothing ever goes according to plan. So he's got to make it up as he goes along. And what I also really enjoy is that, yes, you know, Gabe, it is Indiana Jones and, he, and he's just out there on his own, but he does have a nice support system. And he clearly has fostered relationships through the years that, in the case of some, like Marion, cause a little conflict, but also, you know, he's got points of contact around the globe, whether it's Marcus or whether it's Sala, and then his dad is able to, you know, kind of chip in. And, and that's in part what I love so much about The Last Crusade is, is that quartet at the end. And, and that's what, in part what makes the tank scene, Josh, so wonderful is that they all sort of have a role there, whether it's, you know, Brody and Dr. Jones trapped inside the tank and Sala tracking down the camels, even though he's not supposed to. Like everybody's, you know, kind of got a part to play in all that. And for as wonderful as Indiana Jones is as an action hero, he still needs help, just kind of like the rest of us. Two great making it up as he goes scenes, I think, from Last Crusade. We didn't talk about that much about the opening scene from Last Crusade where River Phoenix is making it up as he goes. And we see that this is an elemental part of Indiana Jones right from the beginning. And the other one that isn't an action sequence is when he's finally having this dialogue with his father. And you can kind of see like, 
I'm, I'm, I'm going to get them. You know, like you were interested in all these dead people hundreds of years ago and you didn't care about me. You didn't want to talk to me. And then Connery comes back at him with, well, what do you want to talk about? And he's dumbfounded. He can't think of anything, you know, well, what are you complaining about? And that's where it's, you know, like that, that, that's such a, and again, back to relatability, that's a relatable moment. I'm in a, an argument with a, with a family member, with my dad, and I've got him dead to rights. I'm, I'm going to nail him on this point. And then he asks me a question that I'm totally unprepared for. And I, and I feel like I've wasted an opportunity as, as much as uh, Spielberg and Lucas wasted an opportunity with Temple of Doom. Um, <laughs> but, it, you know, this flying by the seat of his pants, uh, it's, it's, in his, it, it's in all these different formats, too. And I think on top of all of that, or, you know, it sort of feeds off of that, what I, I love that aspect of the character, but I think what I might like more is the fact that he's this academic adventurer and how he's your atypical adventure hero. Like, like an, an, an one silhouette of him is very much the typical adventure hero, but then you have the other one who's carrying around this like giant textbook that just so happens to have a picture of the arc. And it's like, these two things don't seem to go together, but Harrison Ford makes it work. And you, and, and I think it also speaks, and, and part of the reason that I said that I think it plays into each other is that part of the reason that he's able to make it up as he goes is the depth of knowledge that he has to use during these moments. I mean, what makes Indiana Jones so engaging during different parts of these films, I'm thinking specifically of Last Crusade, where they're starting to get down to the other half of the tablet, um, is that he's a problem solver. He's a puzzle master, right? Everything that he needs is right in front of him, but he has to figure out how, what do I need to put together to get out of here? Or perhaps what do I need to smash through? Because, because I've located, I've located where X actually finally marks the spot. Now I'm going to go about it in a different way than, than the typical adventure hero might, but I only got there because of the depth of knowledge that I had in order to get Jay, how badly do you want that giant textbook with the two padlocks on it? I mean, now that we're virtual, it wouldn't have the same effect. But yeah, no, I would love, I mean, it just, it, it carries such clout, right? Like you're carrying it in and, and, and kids are like, I didn't think I was going to like writing class, but I don't know that what's in that textbook. What, there's got to be something important in there. You got a coffee table book. That thing is the table. And what's, what's inside there? Fire, lightning, power God something i always love how he how he basically turns right to that you ever notice that he turns right to that page on the first try even on the uh, by last crusade they fixed that you know he has to flip through the diary a little bit to find the right page but yeah talk about infallible boy has this giant textbook oh you want to know about the ark that's just oh right here well he's poured over that so many times he's got he's asked to have that one dog-eared that's like his teenage rebellion years like dad's gonna learn about the grail i'm gonna learn about the ark I'm going to know everything there is to know about the Ark. I'll show you, Dad. You're Take stupid. that, Henry Jones. <laughs> and, oh, I also just connected uh, this time. I always wondered, like, it's great that, you know, Harrison Ford did a little Scottish bit to get into the castle there. Never connected that, of course, he'd do a Scottish accent. He's listening to it all the time growing up, just as a quick tribute to the roots of the Jones family, I suppose. Tapestries? Uh, is the, man, the man is dense. There are, is this a castle, isn't it? There are tapestries. We're just going to quote the rest of the movie for you here now, folks. So you're, you're going to get your money's worth out of this one if they don't take us down for copyright infringement. <laughs> a lot of what I think we're talking about here is um, 
the charisma of the character, and a lot of that, sure, is due to the actor Harrison Ford, who is just a, a very charismatic and, and attractive personage, but he, uh, he passes a lot of that on to Indy. Um, and we talked about, you know, the, the relationships he, he has and his imperfections. And I, I think that really comes out in, he is just a, he's a very whole, flawed character. I mean, it's what you want. How do we think he's sort of changed? Like, what's the arc of Indiana Jones? Thinking about it, because like, this is a guy who's seen a lot of stuff, you know, I mean, even from as established in Last Crusade, from a young age, he was getting into some scraps. And then he has sort of a turnaround moment as as Dan maybe uh, figured out in, in Temple of Doom before that sets him on the straight and narrow. He becomes a teacher, for goodness sake. But he's also still, you know, going after artifacts, the big stuff, you know, the that passion for archaeology is never lost. And yet it always sort of baffled me that by the time of Crystal Skull, he's sort of still a skeptic. I mean, is, is that healthy, just sort of scientific skepticism from Indiana Jones? Is that just bad writing to just not acknowledge that the thing that eventually is going to happen at the end of the movie is going to happen? Or what, are, I don't know, what do we think is what we're looking at here? I think it's really hard to judge the development and the progression of this character because of Crystal Skull. Because to me, the character was left so beautifully in place at the end of Last Crusade that it feels like we should have just left well enough alone at that yeah. point. I mean, Indy's been through a lot at this point. You know, he, he's on the quest for the grail, but as Jordan pointed out, illumination is what they discover in the end. And it feels like he's gone on this journey to discover these tangible things but he realizes that the real prize is the relationships, particularly that with, with his father. And, and the beautiful line that is associated with this, uh, let it go, Indiana. You know, you've quested after these physical things. It's okay to not possess them. You've gone on the adventure. You have things to take away outside of this tangible stuff. And you can't, I think you can't look at the movies in order if you want to look at the progression because I believe that Temple of Doom was supposed to be a prequel of sorts, which helps explain Indy's mercenary personality at the beginning of that movie where he's, you know, trying to literally sell items for money and, you know, the whole for fortune and glory, kid, fortune and glory. But th like that's not the Indiana Jones that we learn about at the beginning of Last Crusade, which is supposedly him as a child when he says that belongs in a museum. So it's it's a very odd sort of pinball progression, but I haven't talked about Crystal Skull so far and that's intentionally. Uh, I don't, that movie is fun, it's fine, whatever. I look at this as a trilogy and I really would have liked to just leave it at the end with Let It Go, Indiana, learning the lesson that the physical prize is not necessarily that which the journey equates you to to seek after. And I think, you know, Gabe, to your question, if you're going to think about the sort of narrative arc of this character, you kind of have to pick and choose the moments that you're going to use to explain that or to uh, complete that equation, as it were. And I think, Dan, you're kind of talking about that, that like there are these, there are these complicating factors throughout that make the character more confusing than he really should be. To piggyback on something that Dan said, you know, Dan, you talked about how, referencing something that I said earlier about the idea that they find illumination, that they, and I think maybe something that does tie the character together into some semblance of an arc is the idea that by the end of Last Crusade, 
Indiana Jones has come to accept things that are larger in, than him and things that are out of his control, because that is something that ties into the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark. You have several different characters. You have both Sala and Brody warning Indiana Jones about the power of the Ark. And Indiana Jones is kind of dismissive about it. He's skeptical about it. And you have a sense that if those same conversations were had with Indiana Jones at the end of Last Crusade, that his answers would be significantly different because of the things that he's seen. In terms of an arc, I mean, this this is really not, you know, this sort of analysis is really not my forte. The, the, the thing that keeps coming to mind in hearing all you guys is that what Indiana Jones exemplifies most to me is passion. He lives his life with this dynamic passion in everything that he does. Um, and yes, in the, you know, the zeal for the chase for these uh, artifacts, but also in the relationships. And he learns that that is the more important thing. That is the thing that he should be more passionate about. And he also throws this passion into something as simple as running, as as Gabe, you know, noted early on. This is this is a guy who who lives life all the way, and so I'm not really sure how that fits into, uh, you know, the the narrative arc. That's something that, that Jordan might be able to uh, summarize more coherently. But I think that 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 passion is something that we can take away from the character of Indiana Jones. Well, let me back off on the the language then a little bit because I don't necessarily mean arc in that in that tradition. You know, what is the character? How is they? How have they grown by the end? I mean, the the famous example too is I mean, the, I think the beauty of Indy is that he is kind of a fully formed package. He himself doesn't change all that much. He has maybe a couple of epiphanies. You know, he learns the big lessons. But you know, um, as the old joke goes in Raiders of the Lost Ark, if Indiana Jones does not involve himself in the story of that film, the same thing happens by the end. The Nazis take it somewhere, they open the ark, they're all dead. It just happens without Indy being there to witness it. Um, that's not to say that, you know, he's a, he's a, I don't mean to say he's a bad character for not having that. I guess I'm asking just what is it about him that changes? You know, what, what or is the character just what we need him to be at the time he exists? I think the character does change and does develop, again, over the course of the original three movies. Think about the sequence in Raiders, and Jordan, you kind of alluded to it, when he's talking with Brody about the Ark, and he says something to the effect of, I'm going after a find of incredible significant historical significance, and you're talking about the boogeyman. As if to say, like, none of this stuff could, th this is all, these are hoaxes, these are ghost tales, none of this stuff is, is possibly real, we don't have anything to worry about. And then he makes the little joke about, you know, what a cautious fellow I am as he, as he packs his, as he packs his little sidearm, his pistol, as if that's going to be enough to defend against these powers that, you know, seem to exist within the Ark itself. But I really believe by the end of the Last Crusade, he has respect for those powers that do exist. And I think it, again, it manifests itself with the idea that, well, not the idea, but the actual moment when he's literally hanging for his life and his dad says, let it go. Okay, you know what? You're right. I don't need the grail. I'm good. I'd rather have my life and my relationship with my friends and my father and get the hell out of here in one piece. And he's come to realize maybe the, the action or the consequences of some of his actions and also 
the great powers that mythically do exist with some of these, you know, antiqui antiquities that he has sought after. And he has to come to accept them considering the fact that without, without one of them, his father is not there to ride off into the sunset alongside him. Yeah, I, I guess I just think that like, yeah, you can find these arcs, but they're, they're in each movie. Like, it's not like a, yeah. an episode one to episode three. It's like, this is the arc for the first movie. And then he, we kind of start over and this is the arc for the second movie. And then you definitely can spot some growth by last crusade because it's not the lure of the grail that gets Indy to sign up for this task. It's the fact that his father is missing. So I definitely think you can spot some, some growth there, but, but I think you, you're, you know, the, you're looking at more, you know, mini arcs. The the real arc was the friends we made along the way, as they say. Yeah, I think that's what I meant earlier when I said you had to kind of pick and choose moments. You you have to ignore certain parts of the film to create these arcs from one to the other. But but and Josh, just to repeat something you said, I, I do think there's definitely something there from Raiders of the Lost Ark to Last Crusade in that, you know, to your point, the seeking the grail would have been enough for Indiana Jones had that been presented to him at Raiders of the Lost Ark. But that's not when it was presented to him. It was presented to him after that. So that speaks to some sort of growth, some change that has come about in that character. And I think just for the record, if there isn't a ton of character growth across these three movies, I think that's okay. Like, I don't know that Indiana Jones needs to be a terribly complex or dynamic character in terms of his personality growth because I think as a character he brings other things to the screen that make him a dynamic character. Like he doesn't need to be complex in terms of his growth because he's got other stuff that make us relate to him or want to engage with him or be drawn to him. In other words, I, I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is that I don't think a good or a great character is necessarily exclusively defined by their growth. They can have other things going for them. And I think maybe at the end of the day, that's the case with Indiana Jones. No, I think that's right. As um, I, I think I referenced here, that he does kind of arrive to us fully formed. I mean, he is a, though flawed, he is a complete character. Um, you know, we see that in the opening few minutes, you know, in, just how he moves, how he goes after what he wants, and and yeah, then as the result. But I think you guys make good points too that within each movie, obviously those are sort of the mini arcs. And and Raiders is kind of a what you brought up, Dan, at the beginning. He says, yeah, I mean, you're talking about the boogeyman, and by the end, he's chiding the U.S. government for not taking this seriously enough. Um, so yeah, certainly the you know, respect for the powers that be um, is evident there. And yeah, by by Last Crusade, because Temple of Doom is different. I mean, there it may very well be that the arc is going from just treasure hunting power and glory to maybe there's something more now that I've seen, you know, this stuff, you know, this has been a life-changing, you know, thing. Nothing like this is probably ever going to happen to me again. So I'm going to go home and teach, you know, do the quiet life now. Little did he know. And then by Last Crusade, the, the indie concept is sort of elastic enough that we get to have more fun with it and they get to have moments like what um, Josh had referenced uh, earlier on, the, um, that father and son scene on the Zeppelin. And I think that tells you a lot about, that's a defining moment for Indy's character. I think he finally gets to, his grail quest is searching for his father, really. 
I mean, he, he says at one point, I don't care about the Holy Grail. I'm, I'm here to find my father. That's his whole thing. He makes a big show about how much, oh, guys, I, I so don't even care about the Holy Grail. You have no idea how much I don't care about the Holy Grail. I'm just here for my dad. I don't even care about the Holy Grail. But, of course, then he's giddy as a schoolboy when they start finding the clues and, and all that delightful Indiana Jonesing takes place. No, I think that's uh, it, it's true that, yeah, the arcs are sort of, it's, it's big shifts in Indy's perspective. Um, it maybe changes who he is, but he himself is, is who he is. And I think that is kind of what is so delightful about Indy. He, um, and that's what we've been talking about. That's what makes him who he is. And that's why we love him. That's really fantastic stuff as always, guys. It, it's, uh, we're going to dole out the couple of points here now. And I'm, I feel like I've done this before and I'm going to do it again, but two of you made uh, a point that I thought was uh, pertinent about talking about Indiana Jones's character, about picking and choosing. Uh, Jordan and Dan, you both, brought up this argument in, in a sense and Jordan you also get it for the illumination and uh and Dan you get it for the the let it go bit um and Josh you get a point in my heart for the father-son scene on the zeppelin uh they made the same one there and I thought the matching points would be cute so we go in to our final question uh one all Josh Dan and Jordan all sharing a point leaving and I hope you've been holding on to your potatoes because this one is for all of them on the three-point question we've we're down two trials the penitent man passed and we walked the ancient Scrabble letters without falling through the floor. And now we're on to the final task. So let's take a deep breath and a leap of faith and discuss what in the heck do we want from the proposed Indiana Jones 5 that is supposed to come out by, I think, the next couple of years, 2022 or something like that, which sounds like a million years from now, uh, I got to say. But what on earth could that movie possibly be? Dan, let's uh, sound off on this one first. So my initial inclination here is to say that what I want out of Indiana Jones 5 is a line that I referenced a moment ago, and that is, let it go. And that is to say, not have an Indiana Jones 5, because I saw what Indiana Jones 4 was with Mutt and, yeah, Kate Blanchett and the outlandish accent, and Harrison Ford isn't getting any younger. So that's that would be my initial inclination. I'm going to play ball, though, and I'm gonna, I'll give you something more than that. What I would like to see from Indiana Jones 5, first of all, as much Harrison Ford as humanly possible, because Harrison Ford on the big screen, we just can't go wrong. Some fun cameos, I think, would be pleasant. One in particular, I mean, if Sean could make a return appearance, I think that would just be dynamite. The big thing I'm going to say is this, though. Steven Spielberg, I believe it's rumored he's not directing this movie. I don't think he is. So if that's the case, I would like Taika Waititi to direct Indiana Jones 5. He did Thor Ragnarok. He did Jojo Rabbit. And he did, I believe it was the last episode of The Mandalorian. This is a guy who does really well with joining together action and humor and creating fun movies. And as I said earlier, to me, Indiana Jones is fun. Taika Waititi makes fun movies with substance, though. He makes characters and stories that have substance and are fun. That's what I want from Indiana Jones 5. That's a great choice. Who wants to tell him? They've already got their guy. Yeah. Well, hey, is, is the movie done? 
they've, they've already wrapped. I mean, this wasn't this movie rumored to be under production four years ago. I'm sure it was. And we saw where that went. So want a revolving door of directors like Solo, a Star Wars story. And that gets back to my previous point of let it go, that it shouldn't happen anyway. Who uh, just, you know, in classic Dan, I obviously didn't do my research. Who is directing this fine Academy Award winning film? You mean you didn't even read the show notes? I read the show notes. Were they not in there? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, but hey, uh, it still could be somebody else. It's not too late. This is this is true. And you know what? If if James Mangold is unable to direct, then I hope they do reach out to Taika Waititi. I think he would be great. Who's uh, that? The Ford v. Ferrari guy? And the 310 to Yuma guy and the Logan guy. Oh, 310 to Yuma was really good, though. Uh, yeah, no, I think um, uh, I think, uh, I'll think let some other folks make some better points about uh, about James Mangold. But I think if you were going to go this way, he's a he's a good choice for at least tipping the fedora, say, to the style of Indiana Jones. He did walk the line, too, didn't he? Yes, he did. And I think that, just to jump in here, and hopefully I won't say something that is factually incorrect as well, um, so at least to keep me in the running, um, I, I wonder if that's a potential route to take, um, because that's always, that's always been a movie that I have really fond uh, spot for in my heart. And, and you know, you, you, you want to do a musical? <laughs> Give me a moment here, all right? You'll have your turn. Um, it goes along. Well, if we are doing a musical, you can bet that John Reese davis is going to be singing plenty in it. And if we can't get him, then we'll at least have Josh doing his impersonation. Uh, and doing I have the bomb knock up the sea. Over in Sullivan, some royalties. But not so much the music, although I'll bring up the musical point here in a moment, too. Um, but, you know, you have the, the, the biopic of um, Johnny Cash in Walk the Line. And, and that might be, you know, if we, go, if we go down the idea of investigating the character of Indiana Jones. Um, I know that it's been rumored that it will be a continuation after Crystal Skull, I would prefer it to not be that. Although if you're going to have Harrison Ford play Indiana Jones, you kind of have to. But if you really go, like I'm almost thinking like digging into his past life, digging into the past character and, and doing kind of a deep dive of how he, how he became who he is. Um, you know, just kind of investigating the character more than the adventure around him. I'm liking this idea less and less as I'm going through it because you have to have some adventure in there. One last point with the music, though. I'd love another phenomenal performance from John Williams, and I suspect that we will get it, although it makes me think that um, Crystal Skull, there's, there's no, there are no tracks on there that really stand out for me on that. So, you know, if he, if John Williams could potentially go back to giving us some of those themes that we love so much from Raiders of the Lost Ark and Last Crusade, it'd be nice to see that out of Indiana Jones 5. I'd even be okay if John Williams just contributed like the main theme, like what happened with Solo. He didn't do the entire score for that movie. He just did the solo theme. I'd even be okay with just that. I would just like it noted here quickly, Gabe, that while my suggestion was inaccurate, Jordan did flat out admit that his idea, in his own words, getting worse and worse the more that I talk about it. So I'm not saying that about my idea. I love my idea. 
yeah, but your idea is not happening. Well, I'll tell you what, what, what we all should want, um, and this sort of fits in nicely coming on the heels of our prequels podcast, Indiana Jones was initially conceived of in a filmmaking sense as a low-budget adventure movie, old-fashioned tricks, not a lot of visual effects, a lot of practical effects, quick and dirty, not doing a lot of takes, um, you know, giving the, the actors a chance to appear, to come off as organic as possible by not overdoing everything. Um, I think a return to that style of filmmaking would do this next indie movie a great justice. It, it would just set it off in the right direction, no matter who the director is, whether Spielberg pulls a Ron Howard and comes in and grabs the wheel at the last second, whether they take Dan's suggestion, because it's a great one for Taika, or whether uh, James Mangold sees it through. Because I, I, I feel like that is a big area where Crystal Skull fell down. Was It, it really did not feel like one of these... Uh, low-budget action-adventure movies. It really felt overproduced. It really felt big and expensive, and that just didn't fit with the previous indie films that we loved. I think that's a great point about Crystal Skull. Every time I watch it, I, I'm immediately struck that something is different, and I try and figure out what it is. And I think it is, um, as was brought up, the, the prequels factor. It's it's overproduced compared to the ones prior to it, which you know by yeah the time of Christ, uh, by the time of Last Crusade are not necessarily small movies, but yeah I don't even think the sky is real on some of these you know early Area 51 shots behind them as when they do that opening sequence in Crystal Skull, um, to say nothing of Mutt Williams Tarzaning through the trees with the monkeys. I mean th these. And that's the other thing. We've de there's a demonstrated tolerance of silliness in Indiana Jones movies. And Crystal Skull, while it really toes that line, I think it is too much. I think that's a, a good breakdown, Josh, of, the, of that movie's main problem, really. It's overproduced for what it needs to be. And Indiana Jones does do best when it's scrappy. Hopefully Mangold can, can bring that back down to earth, as it were. That, that's a really good way of putting it, Gabe, a, a general tolerance of silliness. Because you're right, we do accept certain things in these movies because that's just what happens in an Indiana Jones movie. But that line can be crossed, and it has been crossed on too many occasions, and I hope they don't go down that road. And one thing, it's not a thing I'd like to see, it's a thing I really, for the love of God, hope they don't do, is one of these digital de-aging situations of Harrison Ford, the way they did for Grand Moff Tarkin in Rogue One, the way they did for Carrie Fisher in that movie as well, I don't want digitally younged up Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones. If you cast the guy at whatever age he is to play Indiana Jones, then just let it be that. If you can't come up with a story that has Harrison Ford at age X playing Indiana Jones, then the story shouldn't exist. I agree, but I'd like to welcome you to my TED Talk on my thoughts about how that's probably exactly going to happen in... Indiana Jones and the de-euthanizing of the computerization process. No, I, I don't think that's going to be the main thing they do with Harrison Ford, but I, I feel like with that technology available and with the, yeah, and I share this hope that somehow Spielberg or James Mangold or just Harrison Ford can coax Sean Connery out of retirement for one quick thing 
maybe he'll be a force ghost and they'll explain that away somehow. I don't know. Um, but if they do that, I feel like it would have to involve something about time or like getting into this dimension of the aliens. And if so, maybe Indy actually gets to take a quick look back. I feel like I would only tolerate this euthanizing tool if somehow like Indy is able to take a look back at himself, almost like a, a Christopher Reeve Superman winking moment at the camera of like, boy, it's been a really long way and I don't look like that anymore, huh, kid? What a ride it's been. And then he dies. That's it. No more Indiana Jones movies. We're done. I have been thinking a little bit about last time they did this, they followed the same number of years as it had been between movies in within those movies. That is to say, it had been 19 years between Last Crusade and Crystal Skull. And so they just did it that 19 years had passed between those movies. It's 1957 by the time we get to Crystal Skull. So if they do this again, it's going to be 12 years later and it's going to be 1969. What did America do in 1969? We walked on the moon, gentlemen. Indiana Jones in Moonraker. Here we go. Indy in space. That's what they're telling us. That's what's going to happen. I, I don't, I, I'm not telling you that's what's going to happen, but I would not be terribly surprised if that popped up a little bit. I, I'm just not certain where else you go. Like you've already gone the, you know, this interdimensional route, which yeah, speaking of silliness, it kind of was the way they deployed it. I maintain, I think they could have gotten away with it if they'd been honest from the start really about that's what it was. And like the film sort of was, but Indy's always hedging his bets throughout the movie. So they never quite commit to the bit. I think that might've saved part of Crystal Skull, but like, that's where we are now. If we're counting all this stuff as, you know, in Indy's life, I don't know where you take the man in five. I am hoping for a good, I mean, Harrison Ford's turned in some great work lately and stuff like Blade, Blade Runner 2049. I think that we're talking about career best performances. I think that's on the list for for Fords. I think his return as Deckard in 2049 is great. He's still capable of great work. But, you know, as we saw with Robert De Niro in The Irishman, there are still physical limitations. And Indy is a very physical guy, even if you do put the euthanizing CGI cream on him. So, I don't know. It's it's a tough proposition. And part of me is almost hoping that this movie serves as, you know, Shia LaBeouf's comeback vehicle and everybody likes him again. And they sort of pull an inverse Last Crusade, another father-son joint. I don't exactly know how that would work. I'm not saying I'm hoping, hoping for this, but I could see it working maybe. Is it fair to say though, as it relates to this particular movie, outside of Harrison Ford playing Indiana Jones and a director that I didn't know was cast to to direct the movie, that we don't know anything about else about this film? Yeah, everything else is pure speculation. We just have to be the, uh, you know, top men suited to discuss such important matters. Let's just hope that our uh, discussion doesn't get buried in the same uh, warehouse that the Ark was, because then we'll never see it again. No, we have to hope that it's going to be buried in the sand for a thousand years, and then when they pull it out again, it'll be priceless. Look, we all know know we'll be walking out of the theater, looking back, saying they don't know what they have. All right, boy. I, I, I guess it's. Uh, I'm hearing the. I'm hearing the John Williams. I'm hearing the credits theme rolling. So we should probably. Uh, I should probably dole out these final three points a little bit. And and again, you guys made it hard, but sort of for the opposite reason, because, uh, you know, Dan sort of flubs the Taika Waititi bit, and Jordan's talking down his own point. So I think by default, sort of like Indiana Jones being there, having no effect on the ending of Raiders of the Lost Ark, <laughs> Josh gets the points. Uh, for truly a cumulative excellent round of Indiana Jones work. But I, I'm sorry, guys, I, I was left no choice. You should have listened to your father. 
Thank you. Uh, we can discuss my honorarium over dinner and champagne tonight. Your treat, Gabe. Yes, my treat. Oh, goodness, goodness gracious, folks. Thank you all so much uh, to all who tuned in today. We're thrilled you came by to dork out with us again. And, and since you are here, first, we thank you for having subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever and however you access your podcasts. And please tell your friends, families, and fellow dorks to do the same. We wouldn't mind if you chose to rate, review, and subscribe to us on any of those platforms. Please also follow and connect with us on Instagram at dorkfest underscore podcast. The museum appreciates your support a great deal. And so do we. Thanks again for joining us and tune in again soon for more Dorkfest podcast. Small world, Dr. Jones. Too small for two of us. This is the second time I've had to reclaim my property from you. That belongs in a museum. So do you.